Fashion Radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Jingle, 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 jingle all the way. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, o'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on Bob Dill ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh a day or two ago. Take a ride. Soon Miss Fanny Bright was seated by my side. The horse was lean and lank. Misfortune seemed his lot. He got into a drifted bank, and we we got upside. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. A one-horse open sleigh. Jingle, 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 jingle all the way. Hey! The Tom Summer Program.com We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
Good tidings to you wherever you are. Good tidings for Christmas and a happy new year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and as uh, regular listeners know, I am such a fan of the golden age of Hollywood and old movies and uh, the the tremendous talent that that uh, that we really got addicted to, and why we go to the movies. And a new, uh, uh, well, it's not it's not a new book, but it's now in paperback about Olivia de Havilland, Lady Triumphant, written by my guest this hour, Victoria Amador. And she joins me by phone. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be able to talk about Olivia. Now, you know, I, I, I have such a love affair with old movies and, and me too. the the great <clears throat> talent that... Um, of of the people that performed the Hollywood legends, if you will, and Olivia de Havilland mm-hmm. is certainly a Hollywood legend. But I talked to so many uh, writers who are exploring film noir and all these different you know elements, and some yeah. of the performers, uh, the directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Otto Preminger, and so on. But I came across something. I was reading uh, uh, some press about about your book. Uh-huh. And it said um, you were able to utilize extensive interviews and 40 years of personal correspondence <laughs> with de Havilland. Were, yes. were you chums? <laughs> yes, we were. Yes, we were. Um, I was really, really fortunate, and I was also really persistent. <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, like you, I'm a <clears throat> huge film fanatic. I mean, I always have been. And um, when I was, you know, a kid as well as an, a young teenager, I was raised in central Wisconsin, and there were three TV channels. <laughs> so, you know, you lived by old movies, Saturday night at the movies, and then the local cinema. Oh, I remember watching Charlie Chan movies in the middle of the night. And, oh, yeah. And, and you know, when you say three channels, I was thinking back to my own childhood, and it was two channels and a third kinda. Kinda <laughs> like if it was raining, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, yeah, depending on the weather as to yep. how well that third channel would come in. Um, but but they generally represented the three major networks. They they represented the three major networks. This was pre PBS, you know. So, yeah. um, and as you say, you know, if it was a rainy night or something, or if you got the um, tinfoil just right <laughs> on the rabbit ears, then you might get another channel. And so, 
I grew up loving old films, but then in um, 1969, um, MGM reissued Gone with the Wind. And it was in 70 millimeter, so they had blown up the original negative. And, of course, they weren't showing it on television, and that was the first time I got to see it. Um, and back then, um, too, reading the book was like a rite of passage um, for teenage girls. This was the mid to late 60s. And so when the film came out, I absolutely, oh, I was bowled over by it. I mean, I, I'd just never seen anything like that before. And being such a fan, I wanted to write a fan letter. Um, and Vivian was dead and Clark was dead and Leslie was gone. But Olivia de Havilland was in Paris. <laughs> and so I found her address in the local library, and I wrote her a fan letter. And uh, that began a long correspondence that developed into a friendship, face-to-face, -face, finally. <laughs> well, and, and she lived for a very long time. <clears throat> she died um, last year, July 26th, at 104. So, that's just that's just amazing and and I can't help but ask and this is way off topic but I was going to say what did she die from but uh, at 104 I'm sure she yes. didn't you know roll it was it. natural causes it was natural causes but it was not <laughs> covid related no no it wasn't I, no. just because of the time you know I sure. I, I I can't I couldn't help but ask. And and I realize when you ask how a person who's 104 died, you're asking for trouble. But oh, um, No, I take your point, and I, I think that's a fair question. But no, she it wasn't from COVID. She was in the, the very lovely um, nursing home that she had moved into, Residence Trocadero in Paris. And um, it was just, she was just fading, and it was time to go. And it was a. She had a beautiful death, and um, uh, was surrounded by people who loved her. And you know, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> yeah, we should all live past a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, every day is a blessing. I think so. Anyway, so no, it wasn't COVID related, but it was still really, really hard to to lose her. You know, I just, you know, she just seemed immortal to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and and you know what her name Olivia mm. de Havilland really just it it fits. It's musical, isn't it? It, and it, 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 it is. It fits the elegance and and yeah. um you know her persona so well. Absolutely it does. You know, I I think Yes, it's so theatrical, you know, and it's very musical. Um, but and the 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 beauty of it, Olivia de Havilland, you know, it, it's just so lovely to say, and it really matches her screen persona. But also the woman, you know, uh, she was a really nice person, tough as nails, nobody's fool, <laughs> but so very kind. She was lovely. Well, let's. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. How did she view okay. herself? I think that she viewed herself as she she didn't take herself seriously in in the respect that you know she wouldn't have humor about herself. But I she always said that when she played the role of Melanie, 
um, that she was a loving character, purely loving, and that she wanted to sort of use her as a kind of template for her life. And so I, I feel that she did. I think she felt that her life was good, it was full, it was successful, it wasn't without its sorrows. But I, I think she was a very at-peace, contented person filled with joie de vivre. You know, she she was active intellectually, she was involved in her community, and so I think she saw herself, I don't think as a star, but as an accomplished woman who uh, had lived a very, very good life. Was she pretty candid in sharing stuff as you started preparing Mm -hmm. and researching for the book? Was she pretty open about her as, life as, and some well, private things? Yes. As we, got, as we got to know each other better, yes. And there are some things that aren't in the book, of course, that I would never share with anybody. Um, she insisted on um, not being uh, recorded. And instead, um, she was willing to take questions from me. When she found out I had a a book contract. She was willing to answer my questions, but via email. She was very much in control of her legacy. I think she'd learned a lot of lessons. You know, remember, she started in cinema in 1935. So this woman knew how the entertainment business ran. So she was very in control of of the answers she gave me. But as we got to know each other, over the years, and then started having visits. We got to, I got to visit with her five times, um, which was just marvelous. Um, the more we visited, we, she loved champagne, and I'm not averse to a glass or four. <laughs> <laughs> and and it came out that we had we knew people in common. So then, yes, she was much more open with me, um, without a doubt. And so, as I said, there were some things she shared that I, I didn't include in the book, of course. But, but overall, she was very good. I mean, there was nothing that was off limits. You know, there were no questions that I asked that she she refused to answer, which I think is fantastic. That is. Was it then your decision not to include some things in the book or yes, hers? It certainly was. Nope, it was mine. <clears throat> and and nice. why? Um, so many writers, you know, they, they can't wait to get dirt on somebody. Well, do you know, I this is not the, the dirt book, and I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm a fan like you. I love a juicy biography or autobiography, you know. I love those shocking stories. But um, writing about her, I, I was... I was writing about a woman who had been in my life for, she was in my life for 53 years, wow. <laughs> you, you know, by the time she died. <clears throat> so I wasn't going to, you know, if I found some bad stuff, I mean, there, the, the book is not 100%, oh, isn't she perfect? I mean, she was tough, <laughs> and she was, she was sometimes very difficult to work with, with, um, with certain people, but... You know, I I didn't want to write something that was going to... Um, I didn't want to spend my time on something negative that was going to destroy the legacy of somebody. Why would I want to do that? More about Olivia de Havilland with author Victoria Amador. Straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi. .gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
and the Tom Sumner Program. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Olivia de Havilland with author Victoria Amador, straight ahead. You did leave in some juicy bits. Thank you very much. I did. Because, <laughs> you know, everybody wants to see, especially um, with, with film stars from that golden age of Hollywood. Oh, yeah. People want to well, know about the love affairs. Yep, and they're in there. You know, it's like like the Errol Flynn stuff. I, you know, I don't know, and I didn't ask her directly. You know, did you actually have a physical affair with Errol Flynn? None of my business, frankly, you know? Really none of my business. If she had wanted us all to know that, she would. But if you look at at her press over the the last 20 years of her life, oh, she was opening up quite a bit. Um, and... You know, but let's face it, he was married and he was sleeping with everybody. It was probably a good health decision on her part. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, was she in love with him? Absolutely. Was he in love with her? Of course. You know, did they kiss off screen? I'd I'd venture to guess yes. Um, And I think that's enough. You know, I think that's enough to know. Um, but that also doesn't stop me from hoping that it happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, two of the most beautiful people on the screen in the 1930s. You know, I mean, romantic on screen, romantic off screen. Um, and then, of course, too, um, she dated Jimmy Stewart, for heaven's sake. Again, I mean, she was busy. So she was busy. <laughs> Brian Ahern, um, she dated... Um, John um, Houston. Yes, and John Houston, of course, was was the great love. But Howard Hughes as well. And so did her sister date Howard Hughes. I mean, well, everybody dated Howard Hughes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, she was a busy girl. Um, but I think that one of the great things about her, too, and I've done, I did a lot of research on this, she was discreet. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, and... What else would someone called Olivia de Havilland be? But let me let me ask you this: You mentioned her sister very parenthetically. And, well, and, I did a chapter on her. Yeah, Sister Joan. Because uh, you can't not. No, you can't not Joan Fontaine. And but there was yeah. there was some friction between them. Oh yeah, there was. Unfortunately, you know, it's was too that bad. lifelong, or did they ever yeah. make up? No, they didn't. Oh, that's a shame. No, that was lifelong. That was lifelong. And, you know, um, Jones, Joan wrote about it in her autobiography, No Bed of Roses, and said that Olivia had taken control of their mother's um, health at the end of her life and uh, hadn't kept Joan informed and wanted to do, you know, take, take on procedures for her mother that Joan didn't think were were of any use. Olivia felt that Joan had not understood, uh, had been on tour, and it was all left to Olivia. You know, I mean, just because you're sisters doesn't mean you're going to like each other. Well, you know, and, anybody... and it sounds like they experienced some good old-fashioned family stuff. They did. You know, their their father, they left, their mother got divorced, you know, when, they, when Olivia was 
uh, three and, and Joan was one. They were moved to California from Tokyo. Her mother got divorced. Her second husband, neither of the girls liked him. Um, Olivia moved out at 16. She, you know, both of the women, um, their life as growing up wasn't that easy. And you have to think about what is it like to have a divorced mother when you're born in 1916, you know? Um, and then, too, there she is being a, an actress, and suddenly coming up behind her is her, do- her sister, two years younger. Olivia's making these programmers at Warner's, and Fontaine's got a, a contract um, with David Selznick. You know, I mean, who's not going to have some some ill feelings toward her sibling? I would. I mean, you'd have to be a saint not to at least feel some jealousy. And they were very different women. Um, they were both smart. They were both very chic. They were very cosmopolitan, very, very worldly. But Olivia was far more careful in her personal life than, than Joan Fontaine was. And... And Joan was known to be a wit and shot her mouth off a lot of the time when she shouldn't have. And <laughs> Olivia heard it. As, so. as, as wits often do. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> but how did first Olivia and then Joan um, end up going into the movies? Um, well, their mother had been a singer and had been trained uh, in England, and so and then she went on actually to teach uh, vocal skills and that sort of thing later on. Um, they were raised in Saratoga in California, but both of them loved theater, um, and they were Olivia was involved in high school dramatics. Um, in fact, the reason she moved out. Um, from her mother and stepfather was that the stepfather, George Fontaine, which is where Joan gets her name, uh, didn't want Olivia to be doing the extracurricular theater. So Olivia moved out and moved in with a family friend. So from an early age, they their mother loved Shakespeare. They had that sort of uh, upbringing of, a, of an educated, upper-middle-class English mother and, and um, had were both incredibly intelligent. Plus, you know, Olivia wanted to be an English major. She had a a scholarship to go to Mills College. She was going to be a teacher. So there was that love of language. And so um, Olivia auditioned for and was able to be in Max Reinhardt's Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, she was able to tour at 17 and 18. And so from there, um, Hollywood came calling. They saw her in the production of the Hollywood Bowl, and she got a contract. And Joan, two years younger, had been in Japan, comes back home. Well, my sister's doing it. I'm beautiful, too. So on she went. And so Joan followed suit. Um, where did so the, that's how they both got into it. Where did the name de Havilland come from? <clears throat> that is Olivia's father. Hold on. <coughs> Sorry. Olivia's father was Walter de Havilland, and de Havilland is a family name. It goes back, oh, a few hundred years in England as well as Guernsey. Excuse me, sorry, as well as Guernsey. 
Um, the de Havilland family also is known for aircraft. Um, that there is a de Havilland uh, vampire, which was a, a war plane. So it is a very well-known, um, highly respected, well-connected name. It it just in the UK. It just seems that it it just seems like one of those Hollywood inventions because <laughs> it's just so perfect it, for her. It does, but actually, it's the real thing, Walter De Havilland. And um, when Joan decided to go into films, and she first signed at RKO, um, Olivia insisted that she not use the name De Havilland because she had first dibs, and so Joan chose her stepfather's name, Fontaine. Um, but it is, it is, um, actually both of the names are perfect. You know, and in a way, I think they sort of, if you want to, you can look at those names as metaphors for their personalities. You know, Joan Fontaine, you know, it's rather brisk. It's quite, you know, um, sharp. And, and so was she. And then Olivia de Havilland, <laughs> this mellifluous kind well, of Melanie it, sort of name. But that also makes me wonder you know, how, how much they found themselves living up to those names. I think they both, well, certainly they were both very, very proud of their heritage. Um, the last time I saw Olivia, in fact, was in Paris in November 2017. And we spent an awful lot of time talking about um, her mother and her father and her heritage. And in fact, um, her Olivia real father Ash, or her step her real father, her real father, okay. her real father Walter. Did she did she get to know him well? Well, you know, the her parents divorced when she was three. She did ha reunite with him when she was in her twenties. Um, he flew to California, and you know there was a lot of press around about that. Joan was closer to him. Um, than Olivia was. I, I think she did her best for him towards the end of his life, but they were not close. They were not close. She was much, much closer to her mother. Both both Joan and Olivia were. Um, but very, very proud of their heritage. And um, eventually, um, Olivia's daughter Giselle is going to have her ashes interred on the island of Guernsey, which is where mm. the de Havilland's uh, came from was in researching this book is there a lot out there that has been written about about her Olivia and and even about Joan for that matter you mentioned her autobiography but I just wondered if there's if there was a lot of material to go through or if you relied really on those first-hand uh, accounts and, and interviews and correspondence well, I would say both. Um, there were a few books that came out about Olivia in the 70s, um, books about, you know, like the films of Olivia de Havilland. And then there was a, a really juicy, really, <laughs> uh, really juicy book that Olivia hated called Olivia and Joan by Charles Hyam, who was, who made his living as a writer of biographies and journalism about Hollywood stars, and it is, oh man, she hated it. <laughs> she, <laughs> she disparaged it a lot. Um, so there was some stuff that was out there uh, about her and Joan's autobiography, and then, of course, for the research, um, uh, 
I'm an academic, and so I did, I went through all kinds of archives. I went to the Academy Awards Library out in Beverly Hills, and that was fabulous. I mean, to be able to go through those archives. I went through archives. Oh, it was just wonderful to see, you know, contracts and letters from the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and not just things that she had about her, but letters she had written to other people and, you know. Um, UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, has the Selznick uh, archive, and so there was a lot of material there, too. So I did an awful lot of research through um, newspaper articles, also French materials, because she worked, or she moved to France in 1953 and married in 55 and, and of course, remained there in, until she died. So there was a lot of material in French uh, magazines and newspapers as well. Was so that her first marriage in 53? No, it was her second. Her first marriage was um, to a, an American um, writer and author, and um, she didn't get married until she was 30, actually, which was amazing. Um, she got married in 1946, and... Um, they got a divorce. He was very controlling. He was a lot older than she was as well. Um, his name was Marcus Goodrich, and he had written a, a novel about World War II, and he was older. He, she sort of, in, in some ways, had a type, you know? She liked these, she liked intellectual men. She liked men who loved language. Um, she loved them sort of tall and lanky, and Maybe not necessarily handsome, but interesting looking. <laughs> and her father was sort of like that. I'm not going to make a Freudian connection there, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she married him. She had her son by him. But he was very controlling, and he was not liked in Hollywood. He was kind of riding on the coattails of her fame. So she filed for divorce. And then her second husband was Pierre Gallant, who was one of the editors of Paris Match, Paris Match magazine, which is still published. It's sort of like their weekly Newsweek cum people magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, so they met <clears throat> at the Cannes Film Festival, and they married, and she had her daughter Giselle by him. So two marriages, which is not bad, you know, by Hollywood standards. <laughs> uh, jo- Joan had four. So. Did she have any other children than the son from well, the first had, marriage? Well, she had her son and she had her daughter, Giselle. Um, Giselle, um, who helped with this additional chapter in the, the paperback, uh, and is just lovely. She's as sweet as her mother is. Um, and then her son, Benjamin, had Hodgkin's lymphoma hmm. and died at the age of 41. He had been a mathematician very young man and that was that was a body blow for Olivia but onward she she went you know and she and and Giselle were very close and um and she was also close to um Joan's daughter Deborah so she was very very close to her niece um and she had you know too she had a a lively correspondence with so many people including me I was 13 the first time I wrote to her you know, <laughs> and and then towards the end of her life, the last ten years, certainly, um, if not before, she had a lot of young twenty-something graduate students, usually Canadian or American, who were living in Paris, and 
you know, they helped with her correspondence. So she had she had a lot of younger people in her life in addition to Giselle. You know, Lily Tomlin once said there's a reason they call it show business. How yeah. was Olivia with the show business? She was real good. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, mean, I kind of knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> she was a smart cookie, and I think not. that's not only from her native in- intelligence, certainly, and then also with her sister being in the business. Um, and again, she started her job at 18, so she knew a lot about it. She, um, for example, was one of the major thorns in Jack Warner's side at Warner Brothers, along with Betty Davis and James Cagney, because she very clearly knew what kind of career she wanted. And um, when Jack Warner didn't cast her in the right things, she went on suspension <laughs> and refused to do that or refused to do a show or, or, or would get ill. And I'm not saying she did it on purpose, but physically she responded to the, the tension um, a lot. Um, she got out of her contract in 1945. You know, she sued him for breach of contract because she'd been on suspension so much that they tried to add six months onto the end of her contract in 1943, and she took him to court and won. And they appealed it, and she still won. And she did that um, at the height of her career. So for a young woman to take that risk at the age of 27, risk her entire career by taking on a major studio and saying no, uh, you're interpreting my my contract incorrectly. That that took in, enormous courage. Did it create um, any kind of a setback for her? Or was she shunned for some period of time at all? Well, for two years she couldn't work because Jack Warner had her off and he was blackballing her. So she worked on, on radio. She did a lot of radio drama. And also it was during the war, so she also... Uh, did some USO tours overseas and visited, you know, troops in various uh, hospitals and that sort of thing. So, yeah, she did. But when she won, everybody was delighted because basically what that said was a seven-year contract is seven years. If I'm on suspension or I'm ill, it's seven years. It doesn't matter. And so it was the first chink in the armor of the studios controlling performers. Um, and uh, it really contributed to the end of the studio system. And in some ways, that's not a good thing. But in terms of being able to control your own career and your own persona, it was a very good thing. So she was very smart in terms of business. She had sharp agents. Her final agent is a guy named Jim Wilhelm. And Jim is Jim's partner is a fellow that I went to college with. (laughs) So, uh, you know, what a small world. And she, you know, she knew what she wanted. The contracts were tight. She did that all throughout her career. And she freelanced. You know, after she won that that, um, suit against Warner Brothers, she freelanced. And for a a woman to do that in the 1940s in Hollywood, amazing. 
amazing. Did she want to do stage, or did she always have her eyes set on the big screen? She wanted to do the stage, and she loved theater. Um, she got her start, remember, she moved out of the house at the age of 16 so she could do uh, high school theater. So she got her big start doing Midsummer Night's Dream at the Hollywood Bowl in 1934 on to 35. Um, and so after she got her two Oscars, she went to New York in 1951 and played Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, because Max Reinhardt had asked her to please do that someday, um, which was great. And then she went on. She did Candida. She did um, A Gift of Time with Henry Fonda. So, again, to me, that showed that she really was committed to growing as an actress, because um, there's nothing like, like eight shows a night in the theater to show whether or not you really know your, your craft and your art. So, yeah, she loved them both. Well, this is fascinating. Um, you know, as I mentioned when we first started talking, Victoria, and, and you and I are both lovers of the golden age of Hollywood oh, yes. and the, the many great legends that were born in that era. Um, yes. And, of course, we fell in love with these people like Olivia de Havilland on the screen. Yes. And we want to know more about them, but why is it important to to remember these people and and to share their stories? I think that we, just as people, just as you know, just as human beings, owe respect to those who have gone before us. At least those who have done, who have given us something positive and something good, you know, and whether that's family or friends or what our, our country's history is. And that goes also for artists. I, I think we owe those people such a debt of gratitude. You know, where would we be? Who would we be as people without the music that formed us or the art that formed us or the literature? Uh, and we're, we're fortunate enough and privileged enough to be in a position to, for me to even say that, Right. To you know, to be in a, a a situation where we were comfortable enough and educated enough to have to have access to things, so I think that's important. More about Olivia De Havilland with author Victoria Amador. <laughs> Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Hey! Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. 
What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org.
Maya. Sammy. Lauren. Maya. Raya. Riley. Ella. Gabby. Emma. Alyssa. And the Tom Sumner Program. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Olivia de Havilland with author Victoria Amador, straight ahead. I think it's important, too, to recognize how hard people have to work or have had to work to get to achieve uh, success, how difficult that is. And then as a, a good feminist, for women particularly, I think we need to recognize um, those women who have gone before us and honor what they did for us and keep it moving and pass it forward to the next generation. So for me, Olivia was somebody I just really always admired. I, I mean, I liked her so much as an actress. I loved her as an actress. Um, I, I loved her in the Errol Flynn's, of course. Um, but my God, the heiress. <laughs> You've seen it? <laughs> I, I don't know if I have. I'm I'm going to track it down to be sure I do. Yes, you must. Or better yet, as you're buying my book for yourself and all your friends at Christmas, um, check out all the movies in the back. Um, the Heiress, 1949, she got her second Oscar. It's, ooh, and it's with Montgomery Clift and Ralph Richardson and Miriam Hopkins, based on a Henry James novel. Um, she is so amazing, but the reason she got to do that movie was she was on, she knew about the play, it had been a play on Broadway, she knew the novel, she, she got on to getting that purchased, um, you know, she was, and she was doing that as a young mother, and as a young woman in Hollywood, in the 1940s. I, I look at somebody like that, and then I see the result, and it's, to me, it's inspiring. You know, it's like, well, look what she did. What can I do? <laughs> and what can I encourage someone else to do? And and also, too, you know, I, I really feel, Tom, these, the stories that classic Hollywood tells are universal stories, right? Oh, indeed. Nothing, indeed. That's why so many of... The that, that's why there are so many remakes. <laughs> feeling on remakes is, why do you remake something that was perfect? Why don't you remake something that didn't work? Like Guys and Dolls, for example. <laughs> but don't get me started on that. <laughs> I, I have, <laughs> you know, seriously, remake the things that really weren't successful. Um, um, paint your wagon. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, but so we look at these and, and and they're artworks. I think that's the thing, too. Film is art. And every country has managed to develop a very unique perspective on, on its culture through film. 
And for me, Olivia, as well as so many of the other golden era, as well as, you know, contemporary people now, how, how are they forming the way we think, the way we respond? Film has such a power. You know, it's, it's, it's such a powerful medium. And I am very intrigued by people who negotiate it or negotiated it well and who, who did it at a time when that kind of success was almost impossible. So that's why another reason Olivia... You know, I, I just, I've always felt she should be as recognized as Liz Taylor or, um, I don't know, Hepburn or anybody else. Because not only was she a great actress, she was also an activist. And, you know, we, we need good role models, male and female alike, present or past. Well, the name of the book is Olivia de Havilland, Lady Triumphant by Victoria Amador. And Victoria, it has been delightful talking with you. What's next for Victoria? Oh, thanks for asking. That's really kind. Um, I I am working on a, a book about Gothic fashion. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, yes. I um, And that will include some uh, garments in cinema as well as sort of you know, contemporary designers and uh, rock and roll and all of that kind of thing. I think it's all, it all feeds in, doesn't it? Fashion it, it feeds does. into film, feeds into music. and It, it really um, does. Victoria, yeah. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about this book and really all of your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I don't have a website, but it, if you Google um, Dr. Victoria Amador, there are a lot of Victoria Amadors out there, um, which is great, I guess. Um, and But if you check out Dr. Victoria Amador or you Google my name with Olivia's name, um, you'll find other articles out there. Um, <clears throat> also, Google Scholar. I've got a lot of articles on there, too. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it, and uh, keep up oh, the good Tom, work. I'm, I'm delighted. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> Through the years 
Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program as we uh, have spent these uh, yesterday and today celebrating Thanksgiving and kicking off the holiday season. I want to say thanks to my guests today, starting with this last hour with Victoria Amador, author of Olivia de Havilland, Lady Triumphant. And uh, before that, we talked with uh, Gordy Magro about... Uh, a Hundred Slopes of a Lifetime, indicated in uh, a new book by National Geographic. And we started out talking about uh, finance and holiday spending and family traditions with John Sellers from uh, Bank of America and, and uh, Gabriel Flowers Rader, uh, family-focused lifestyle expert. And really, this has been wonderful uh, spending Thanksgiving and of course today Friday um, with these wonderful people I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have and I will be back uh, on Monday with uh, another brand new show um, in fact uh, it's going to be kind of an interesting one we're going to talk about uh, it's Monday show but we're going to be talking about Giving Tuesday which comes up next week <coughs> and um also about the homeless and homelessness in America. And we're going to talk to an up-and-coming, um, well, a young rising star, Olga Petras, and, uh, or Petza, I should say. She's going to be in a Netflix movie that's coming out next Tuesday. So tune in Monday and uh, enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. Um, good night, everybody. Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.